If I'm not here to tell you, what if you were diagnosed with terminal cancer while raising a newborn baby? What if you thought your kid might have to grow up without you? What if you had to grow up without your mom? This is a series for my kid to make sure she is mothered by who I am, my experiences, and the lessons I've learned through my life and my work, whether I'm here with her in the flesh or not. Part biographical, part educational, this is a series on birth and life and death and finding freedom in diving headfirst into the ocean, rain or storm. In today's episode, I talked to Janie Brown, the author of Radical Acts of Love and the co-founder of the Kalanash Society, an organization that is grassroots and nonprofit for people living with and dying from cancer. And I describe it as the midwifery of <laughs> cancer care. Um, you can find out more about them at the link in my Instagram bio at Jessica Austin Childbirth. Today, I talked to Janie about some ideas around how to talk to children. And before we get started, I'm going to read a brief excerpt from her book. I learned then that most deaths are natural. Not easy, but not necessarily scary, nor traumatic, or over-medicalized. Not romantic, nor glorified. Death is most often ordinary and manageable. (laughs) Acceptable, but deeply sad. Hi, Janie. Hello. Thanks for coming to talk with us today. I'm happy to. Um, so today we're talking to Janie, who is um, started the. Did you co-found it with somebody, or did you start it yourself, the Kyle Nash Society? Yeah, I mean, I, I had the idea and then I kind of got together a group of people. So I think of us as co-founding it, you know, from an idea, which I think is usually how it works if you need other people to help you create a vision. So, yeah, I, I, I was um, the vision sort of got activated, like I think many visions do actually from a, a kind of discontent. I mean, I think that's often where <laughs> where ideas uh, start um, when you see a system or you're, you know, you're in a place where you think, oh, things could be different than this, or I'd like things to be better than this. And I was working um, at the time, I started out in so doing a master's in psychology, and then I came to Canada, and I did my nursing actually in Edinburgh after my uh, psychology, and then came to Canada and started to work at BC Cancer as an oncology nurse. And I think that's really where, you know, where so much of my learning came from was, you know, spending almost 10 years there, listening and, you know, working with people with all stages and types of cancer and then um, you know then out of that came like oh I, I became so interested in families experience because te- we tend to just deal with patients the person right. with cancer and I always thought there was something missing you know around that so that's kind of where my interest came in, um, in working with families and then from there you can ask me more about that if you want to how calendars came about but it was sort of really out of this desire to create not a, I would say a complementary kind of space where people could do people who wanted to do the work um, of sort of coming to terms with what it's like first of all to have a diagnosis and to how to integrate that into life and and then for people who have more serious diagnoses or recurrences people who really want to kind of you know understand the impact and also how to you know how to live as well as possible in that whole process of uh, recurrence, which I know you're 
living and breathing as we speak so you're more of an expert than I am on that but uh, really that seems to be where you know my energy went to say what you know what can we do to help people really thrive even when their body is sick what about the rest of the person you know and we I think we forget who we are when we're under a lot of duress and challenge of any kind we kind of forget the aspects that can help us the most you know these parts of ourselves that are that keep us resilient and able to cope so yeah that's a long answer to your question <laughs> stop well, me anytime and jump in. yeah no i love it i think it just sounds so much like my work in birth yeah. and home birth where it's like you know we glorify the clinical care which obviously is mm -hmm. good and it's great that we have universal health care and access to hospitals and medications and surgeries when we need them and you can't just do that part without the human side because right. it it like it's it's not enough and it actually becomes quite unhealthy if you only focus on the the clinical institutional efficient yeah. medical side you you actually accidentally can cause harm a lot of the time and you know when you're talking about with like with cancer treatment and care and living with cancer and then also in death it's kind of the same thing it's like you can get all the best clinical medical care in the world but if you don't have the human aspect you're missing a really big part of the whole process um, yes, exactly. yeah exactly and what yeah, originally I mean, yeah it's very similar in in i think the end the beginning and the end of life around the kind of medicalization that you know that started to happen really quite a long time ago now where um you know we're really at the advent of hospitals being built where people you know and the and the sort of the pathology development of pathology and and i i agree with you completely that you know we got we got we've sort of got sidetracked and I think that's still the case in many places where you know you are a person whose body has cancer and that's really the focus and I think that's a really as you said a very important focus and necessary but then what about all these other parts you know what about your you know your emotions your heart your spirit your community your family you know all of the things you know the impact is you know um, as great or greater on those aspects of life. So I, I'm with you. I think that there's something that's got lost along the way. And that's certainly been, I think, a big reason why I wanted to start an organization like Kalanish so that people can come and talk about all those awful things that happen around treatment and bodies and, you know, the struggles that are real. Um, but then what else is happening, you know, and, and how can we yeah, how can we build that human experience to say this is a part of my life, but it doesn't have to be the only part of my life. It takes up a certain amount of space. Sometimes it takes up most of the space in one's inner life. But I think it's, um, we can help people reorient and they want to so often to say, you know, I don't want to be talking about this all the time. You know, yeah. I, want to, I want to remember, you know, I haven't laughed for a year. It's like, oh, for, you know, <laughs> forget, right? You, you know, you know this and as I've got to know you, I, I, can, I can feel the way that you're living what I'm describing. You know, you found your own way there actually because of, probably because of your orientation in your life and your life's work and birth. You know that you you're you're interpreting that now of course into your own experience now with cancer 
Yeah. Yeah. And I was actually, I mean, I was recommended to connect with your, you and your organization from very early in organ in uh, diagnosis because I have some mm-hmm. very, very close friends who are close to my heart who used your, used your services and, mm-hmm. and throughout. But, you know, like through the process, I felt, I felt very supported by my community and like, I felt like, you know, I didn't feel like I needed that at that time. And what what originally drove me to contact you was when I found out the cancer had spread and Mm -hmm. then my father-in-law died also from cancer at the end of last year. I started to think like, okay, like if I, I started just really thinking about how I wanted to die when I have to and how I can make that like a healthy and beautiful experience that is healthy for me and leaves my family and community as whole as they can be and I wanted to talk to somebody who could help me figure out like first of all just the practical logistics of that of like who you know who could help my family with that who can help me with that if I want to die at home and it's possible for me to die at home who can help me organize that like all the things that I think about in Mm -hmm. birth but don't know how to apply in in death care and um so that's kind of what drove me to contact you at first and then it was just you know I listened to your audio book radical acts of love and it it read to me like a book of birth stories, but about death. Yeah. And it just, it really, I, I just felt this like comfort of like, okay, this person, this person is in line with what I want to create for myself and my family. Um, and all the while having the, like something I notice is hard for, like, comes more naturally to some people and it's a bit more difficult for others is like the ability to like, let me be alive and feeling well right now while also not being afraid to prepare for death in a healthy way. Um, Because you kind of have to do both at once, or I feel like I have to do both of those at once. And one kind of, they kind of complement each other and make each other feel more manageable when I do both, but it's not always an easy thing. You know, some people I feel like have like killed me off as in their minds already. And like it's and um some people are like okay to let me be healthy now but it's a little bit harder to talk about the preparing for death part um Mm -hmm. and something that I wanted what I wanted to talk about with you today is talking to kids about death um Mm. I keep saying you know like the my cancer keeps spreading and even though I feel well, the stats are not really on my side. Um, so I feel protective of my child. And I keep telling everybody, like, I don't care what the stats say. My goal is to be the one I'm going to live as long as possible. And my goal is to live at least a, as long to be the one to explain to my kid when she's dying, when I, that I'm dying, not that mm-hmm. you're not allowed to die, but I'm dying. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, like feeling like I also want to prepare for if you know for for that and also prepare the other people in my community for how to have those conversations with her because I think it's you know how we approach these things is so important and can really impact impact a kid but I was thinking about last night I woke up in the middle of the night and I was thinking you know I feel like 
part of my main job for my kid is to nurture her heart and you know support her through broken hearts and take care of her heart and keep her kind of brightness shining through hard times and like I might be the first person to break her heart and like the things you know so I wanted to talk about your experience of of supporting families and children who lost a parent at a really young age and what you find kind of leads to kids being as like well adjusted and understanding as they can be as they grow up yeah I think it's yeah I mean I have a lot to say about what you've said so far and I I won't get too long-winded but just first of all to say that um what I think of as a real generosity of in you um to want to do this you know to live this illness the way that you you want to do it which is you know to as you said live as fully and well as you can while preparing for death so to me that's a really generous way to be with your illness that will you know like you're thinking which is probably always how you've been you're thinking much larger you know to your community and what what can you do that's going to help both your daughter and your community after you're gone. So I think that's just an incredibly generous thing to do. And it's not to say that people who don't do it that way are somehow selfish. I think it's more, you know, this is true to your nature. So I love that you're activating that. And it's and it's very enlivening to me to meet someone who's so clear about that. Um, it takes a while for people to get there often you know that oh right I could do both you know I can I can live well and put my energy into living and and actually the preparation I believe you know frees up that life energy more like you know the more preparation and the more settled you are about certain aspects um, notwithstanding you know there's mystery to all of this but the things that you can you know prepare and take care of now just frees up your life to, you know really frees you up so I just want to say that you're it's your generosity that I that I really uh, feel in the way you're approaching this to your community and they're very lucky in a way to have you lead the way which is certainly my experience of you know I was thinking when you're just talking now about children and you know you're your middle of the night uh, sort of insight about that you might be the person, the first person to break Kadra's heart. Like that's so, you know, such a hard, such a hard um, realization. But I, then I was just thinking, well, but you've actually were the first person to hold her heart and, and, you know, nourish it. Mm-hmm. And you've had a year of doing that. And, so you've got that too I you know so I don't want to take away from what you're saying about the heartbreak of that the thought of that but you've also already had a year of meeting her heart to heart and um, that's what I I see in children as I've worked with them over the years so just in terms of that background um Jessica is that you know it's like I spent um all those years working in cancer care cancer center as a nurse and then later on as more of a counselor what's called a clinical nurse specialist and then I actually went off and worked at Canuck Place at the very beginning I was part of the leadership program there so again our our lives intersect I, I think too in the way that I was very interested in children early on in my career about how children navigate both their own illnesses but also 
um, death and illness in a parent. So it's been something I've been very, very um, interested in because I've watched different children and I'm curious why some kids are the way they are and other kids are, you know, are, are all, you know, struggle more than others. And so <clears throat> I started a bereavement program for uh, school age kids at Canuck Place. So that was kids who lost um, a sibling or a parent or even a grandparent, um, not just from, you know, from any illness, but also from accidents and uh, traumatic yeah. deaths. So that was, I had several years of working under the, the amazing guidance of the Dougie Centre. It's a good place for you to know and any of your listeners who are interested in learning more about children's grief, but the Dougie Centre, which is G-O-D-O-U-G-Y Centre in Portland. They've okay. got an amazing philosophy that I think is very, um, very in sync with, with our philosophy here at Cowanish and probably yours, you know, that that grief is a natural response to a loss. It's a normal response to a loss. So again, you know, we were talking about medicalization. Well, that's also happened in loss and grief that it's become, um, often it's seen as a sort of a pathological, you know, it's pathological in a certain sense and it's treated that way. So right off the bat, that's what we're wanting to impart to children, um, you know, early, early on. And so in a way, when you talk about, you know, how are we going to educate the people around us, you know, with your daughter, but also, for, you know, for you to understand what happens to children is, you know, again, it starts so early for kids. And, you know, I often ask people, well, what was your first experience of death as a child? You know, and it's usually a pet or a grandparent or, um, you know, it, and, and it happens usually quite young for kids. And it really depends on how, how the people in their life, their parents or guardians or whoever is in their community, how they are with death. So it comes back all the way back to, you know, how are we and, you know, how are we with death? Because that's what you're going to impart to your children um, from a very young age. So if you're terrified of death, because maybe you had an experience when you were young that was traumatic around death, then what are you imparting, right? No, let's not talk about this. This is something we don't talk about or, you know, all the body language that goes around with that, with the kind of fear and terror of talking about death. It starts really, really young. So again, so, so many opportunities with little kids to teach them about death. And again, they're so naturally curious and they're naturally, you know, interested to learn what that means. And of course, there's some wonderful books, but when it, you come to a situation where it's a, you know, a child whose parent is ill and going to die and has to go through that process. Of course, it's a, most of us, I think, um, it's, it's almost, a, you know, I, I won't speak to your experience of it because that's your own, but, you know, I watch the people around, you know, when there's a, a young parent with a young child <laughs> and the parent is going to die, there's so much reaction to that. Like it's almost an impossible situation to find ourselves in you know it's like we almost can't believe or want to believe that that can happen because of this you know absolutely primal instinct and you and i've talked about this you're the one who's supposed to be here to protect your child and to nurture them and to help them understand these things so i think as a as a culture and a community it's just it's very very difficult for us to even enter in to that but what you're doing by who you are is you're inviting people into that and so you're going to see a huge range around you of how you know, how people around you are responding to that so i i think you know, again going back to kids and what they need i think we can you know, get into the nitty-gritty of that but um i would be encouraging all of your parents who are listening who have young children to start now in terms of educating there's some amazing books and you know again 
getting children's natural curiosity around death let that have a space and a voice and yeah. um you know and and we have to work with our own fear to be able to do that don't we i mean if you have as i said if you have a history of you know being terrified of death and you you're going to impart that very quickly and easily to your children so um so i think it's a really good idea for us to do our own work um and of course we've been catapulted into having but most of us think it's not going to for a long time but course, as you know we can't guarantee any of that so so I just encourage any of your, your parents to say, you know, this, there's endless opportunities and take them when they're, when they come, you know, dead bugs. I mean, there's just endless opportunities and, you know, there's many parents your age who are doing such a beautiful job of, you know, honoring life and death in animals and insects and, <laughs> and burials and, you know, all this incre incredibly creative ways that kids can yeah. learn that they can be with death. Yeah. It's such a shame that like culturally, in our, you know, in our kind of North American culture, we've been so, we just avoid it so much. Someone was telling me this, a story the other day about a kid they know, they knew whose father had died when they were two or three years old. And the child kept asking when the dad was coming home and everyone around them kept saying, or the parents just kept saying, oh, he'll be home soon. Mm -hmm. And I thought like, oh my, oh my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> because to me, like the more, like kids are so smart and they know when they're being lied to and it's just Completely. you know like they know they might stop asking us questions because we're probably giving them too much anxiety because they know they're not getting a straight answer or whatever yeah. but like you know they're so capable of understanding like concepts yeah. that you know we don't give them enough credit sometimes I think you know Okay. You know, they're so interesting with probably know this, but you know, the developmental kind of models about how children understand death. And, you know, again, like all these models, I think they need to be taken apart somewhat because I'm not sure if they're completely grounded in, you know, in actual experience. But, you know, so, you know, what, what these models of um, understanding grief in children is that from the age of about zero to two, that children don't or three even children don't have a concept of permanence so that's what you're just you're describing that actually quite well so a child but you know a, a little child who can communicate to you will not understand that the parent has uh, you know is is gone and will not be coming back so again you would expect a child a young child to be looking and saying you know, and, and again, I agree with you. I think that the answer to that isn't just to say they'll be back because to me, yeah, any, yeah, kids know when they're being lied to, I agree with you. And I, I think that that's not, but to understand also as the adult that, you know, you, your child probably won't get that concept till a bit later, you know, really understand it. So then again, it's like, yeah, we, we can look, we can look, we can go and see so you would take a child by the hand and say, well, let's go and see, but I don't think we're going to find, and I know we're not going to find um, your mommy or your daddy or whoever we're looking for. But the looking is part of that, again, this sort of development. So I, again, I trust kind of the, like you do, I think the phrases that come out of children, you know, I, I want to look. So I would say, well, let's look. I don't think we're going to find, but let's look. And then they'll discover, oh, they can't find the person, right? Oh because God. often kids will go from room to room, where's mommy, where's mommy, where's daddy? 
and and it is it is like that it's like there's a need to to know for themselves and eventually they will grow into that knowing and i wonder i've often wondered if you just let kids look at that or search then they may actually know that sooner than you know what the books say you know that kind of comes at ages you know four five and then the other parts uh, i love those sounds um the universality of death is the other concept that we talk a lot about that you know that kids start to suddenly at a certain age it's usually around five where they start to say well if you're going to die then am i going to die or is daddy going to die or is so-and-so you know granny or so then they start to realize oh this is a universal concept and that's right. something that also takes time right so i agree with you there's sort of a a way to respond that maybe is yeah we're so black and white aren't we we just kind of want to say yes or no you know we also want to say no they're not coming back and also what's that instinct in the child to look right because they understand separation from an early age right right would you agree with that this is something that's been yep. taken away or but then death isn't just that of course it's the ultimate separation but there's something i don't know i mean i'd love to know what you think about that idea of would you go with a child to look until they discover it can't be found rather than to be told yeah or maybe both at the same time right like saying like exactly. you know not just not shying away from not right. shying away from it and saying like your your mom died and she's not here and it's a hard thing to understand and do you want to go look for where you, you want to go look like you're asking to go look for her like tell me where you want to look for her yeah. you know or whatever you know like right. and right. the and I think also like as adults, we, we kind of like to just do things one time, but like kids yeah. often need, exactly. you know, need to repeat things until they're at like a developmental age that they exactly. start to get it. Yeah. And the grief actually, you know, over the ages changes. So that's the other thing I think people think we support a grieving child, uh, whatever age they are, but then they re-grieve depending on this age and stage of life. And I think, again, you're right. It's not a one-time thing. So can we open the conversation as soon as they open the conversation in a way, or, or you know, how do we do that? And I, I like the idea of, of, of both, because I think that is what you would do, where you'd say, well, let's look. And then, and then they'd go somewhere where something happened with their parent there, perhaps, you know, depending on what age they are. But, you know, it's, then you'd say, well, what happened here? And they tell the stories, they tell the story. Right. Um, we have a sand tray room here that uh, some, some of your listeners might know. It's a kind of Jungian type of therapy with rows and rows and shelves of object, tiny little objects. And there's a, these big you know, sand boxes. And I've often brought children whose parents are ill or who have died into that room and asked them to tell me the story through objects and choose objects that relate to your parent or whoever it is. And children create these beautiful stories and pictures through objects, you know, of course, because objects have carry such symbols, carry such meaning. And each object has a story. So I think of that too, when you're a child's looking, you know, you go somewhere and what happened? In and that's right. a, a way to enter into the storytelling as well. And to not, I, was, I spoke to someone recently whose mother had died when she was, I think, 11 months old. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I'm thinking of that when you said, like, the, like the grief changes as the age. Like, it's not like if you don't 
address it when they're little or just don't talk about it that mm-hmm. as they grow up they don't notice that they don't have a mom and wonder what that means or wonder why and I feel like I mean like the more we just kind of talk about it and and share yeah. and remember the person and all of those like include that person as part of your life mm-hmm. the less confusion they seem to go through absolutely. later yeah I absolutely agree with that I think that it's you know I do love that phrase that says death is the end of a life but not a relationship so I really believe that you you continue to nurture the relationship the child has and I think that's a very important like you you know you're saying that from your instincts I, I really see that kids who have that ongoing opportunity and it, it is often up to adults at first to bring that person into as many conversations as you would naturally right and to speak about the person this is what the, this is what your mom would be doing or she'd think this or she'd think that and and so because they have to build the relationship and the understanding of who that person was especially if they're very young when their parent dies um they have to they, they have to build it through the people in their community don't they i mean they have to yeah. through photos but mostly through stories and and I, I agree i think the more that you can keep that relationship present I think often there's a, a sort of a myth in grief that you know we're supposed to help people move on and move beyond the loss which to me is the opposite of what you're actually supposed to do <laughs> because right. I think that doesn't work I think it just goes undercover and you just go into silence and privacy and repression around it so I think what you're suggesting which I agree with is that people need to keep that person as you want to naturally in your conversations. I think that is what we want to do. It's what I do with, I've you know, been through so many losses of people in this community. And I, I just treasure the conversations that we have and somebody pops into your mind and you just say it, you know, you remember the story and it makes for a very, you know, very important ongoing relationship with people. And I see that with the the children I've worked with over time, and I mentioned this to you, I've worked with some kids who've had early losses of parents and I've watched them grow up um, to become adults. And I'm so, um, I'm kind of in awe of that because I think we have, again, this might be a, a Western view that somehow this loss at such an early age is going to damage your child. And it's so not how I see it. You know, depending on of course who's caring for your child but the the um the deep understanding that young children have in their bodies actually of loss uh it creates it, it, it again it develop it, it's built into the development of who they become so um i think i might have told you there's a, a a young woman that i work with now whose mom died when she was two and um she's just it's been incredible to watch her go through um, year by year and understanding what her relationship is with her mom and and who she's becoming you know and she's and her family tells me she's very very like her mother and, <laughs> and always has been and so this is such a it's a beautiful thing for her to know that because again she's been building this relationship internally but then people externalize say oh you're you know and she loves that she's like her mother like it's a very helpful thing you can't create that obviously but that's what's happened and she doesn't have any specific memories that she you know that she can talk about but she has a lot of and I think I've said this to you before that you know those very very early like zero to two that you know children have an imprint it's an imprint in their bodies and their hearts and their 
emotions of this feeling of being nurtured and loved and cared for. And so that over time, um, again, can become something that um, these, you know, people can get to know that, what that feeling is they've carried from a very long time. And, uh, and it and it's can be nourished, nourished and, um, uh, what's the word? It's like it, it, it grows inside the person if it's reflected back from the community, if that makes sense. So yeah. it's a really important thing for the community around the, the grieving child to have that reflected back when it happens, you know, like, you know, with Kedra, it'd be like something that reminds people of you. You know, that's a really important thing for a child to hear because yeah. you do live on through your children and you really do through many gestures and moments and and this is you know for you to have to you know think about this now you don't have to you're choosing to but of course you would be in private if you weren't talking about it publicly you would be thinking about it um you know what what lives on and how do you uh nurture Kedra to you know become this human that she's supposed to become I mean that she would become anyway but she's going to carry this loss and this loss to me is um, something that will absolutely change her life and it will become you know a, a, an important influence in her life and I would I mean I can't go to the place that all it does is it damages or hurts kids it's just not that way so right. um, I'm glad I've had enough experience with, you know seeing growing with these kids I had a very sweet little boy who was in um, the, the early bereavement groups and he was four when he came and his, his mom had died when he was three. And um, I ran, so he was in the group for about a year. He was a very quiet, introverted child. And um, you know, he used to want physical contact. He would always kind of climb into my lap. And we just, you know, we just, I would just mirror that. What he wanted was just nurturing was really really dear I became very attached to him and you know <laughs> really treasured him and then I after he left the group I lost touch and I ran into his father one day down at Jericho I think it was and um, there's a boy with him because I hadn't seen them for a long time and he was about maybe 12 kind of awkward and um, I just said, oh, and I, you know, I was so, I, I was so attached because <laughs> I, you know, developed that attachment at such a yeah. young age. And, um, and then he didn't, I said, do you remember me? And he said, no. And I said, oh yeah, well, I was, you know, I actually ran a group and you came and it was after your mom died. And I was just very able to just say that to him. And he looked at me and I could see him just taking me in. And then I was chatting with his dad and I noticed that this young boy was gravitating towards me. It was really interesting to watch. He was just slowly taking steps towards me. And I thought, this is so interesting. You know, like, is his body remembering something right. of comfort? You know, by the end of it, he was standing right beside me. And I thought, oh, this is so sweet. You know, something that he remembered. I really thought that. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting the like the like in like the explicit memory versus the like body kind of yes. feeling yes. memory. Like I often will talk, I often say like I have some very very fleeting kind of like image memories of when my sister was born when I was two. Like being like a like I remember being told I had a baby sister. Like I have this flash image, okay. but. It, 
but what I my like main memory of my sister being born is like the like I remember the feeling of of feeling like a big sister like I have like a feeling memory as opposed to like a like yeah that's exactly what I yeah that's the yes there's a feeling of something it's like a memory that's not there but it's I think it's a visceral memory yeah so some of the research on young kids you know young kids who are bereaved they have that those body memories and they're very important if the if that early life has been you know two things safe firstly safe and secondly loving and that's why the process that kids go through when their parents are ill and how much anxiety and worry is around them you know it's really it can it obviously can reflect in the way that they are with it too so you know i always say well how's a community going to function around this child when someone's ill and this is what you're taking care of so beautifully like trying to figure out well how's how are the people around Kedra going to are, are in this and what are they communicating to her verbally or non-verbally? Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that's a big thing. And I think, do you mind if I repeat what I said to you the other day when we were talking on the phone? Oh yeah, sure. Because I, I um, <clears throat> yeah, we were just having this heart to heart conversation about, well, how do you, how do you do this? And you were holding her and she was, <clears throat> she was awake but you were trying to <laughs> help her get off to sleep and you had the dog in one arm and the wind was you know we were having this you know really difficult conversation and and then you were you were you had started to express a lot of emotion right would that be fair to say you were yes a lot of strong shall we say strong feelings um, a lot of, lot of strong feelings yeah <laughs> Yes, there were a lot of strong emotions being expressed, and which is great. And I was just watching Kedra and I thought, and I watched her drop off to sleep as you were, you know, you were emoting and really getting stuff off your chest. And, you know, of course, you know this when you see some children whose parents do that, like have a lot of, you know, energy to their feelings. Kids just, they just get so agitated and upset. And I I just thought in that moment when Kedra fell asleep in the midst of that, I just thought, well, she's already got some deep learning or, you know, what's nature, what's nurture in her nervous system. She's the kind of kid that already can tolerate that. And I, I just think that's such a good sign. And I think we can see things in kids from a very early age about resilience and how they are. And I noticed that with a lot of the kids that I see here at Kalanish, that I can tell the way they walk in the door, the way they look at you, the way they engage with you. You know, okay, what's their, you know, are they fearful? Are they, that even at Kadra's age, she's so little that she just, you know, she felt relaxed enough, even with all of that, you and I talking, you know, fairly, <laughs> you know dynamically, but also there was, you know, there was, a, there was some, you know, good, strong anger and, you know, upset. And so I thought, well, wow, she just dropped off to sleep. So again, these are the things I'm noticing um, around you and her. And also I see, you know, around me that when kids are, are very fearful and have very, um, you know, nervous systems that are really deeply affected by loud noises, by stimulation, then, you know, those kids, yeah, they, there's a certain way to be with them. And again, you, you could speak more to this than I can but I just I noticed that, that that's the kind of level of observation and care you want 
around kids when they're going through something really difficult. Um, because I think the grief can pass through in a flash is what I notice. It can just cross through, you know, cross the eyes of a kid when they suddenly have a memory and you can miss it really quickly. You can just, because it will just come through. And so I, I love the idea of having a big, big enough community where you've got people who are, you know, who are really observant about things like that and can soften when there's, when it's like when the sky darkens for a moment, you can have someone who noticed. And that's really all kids need is, and they don't even need words. I just think they need to know that someone noticed, you know, that that was a sadness that passed through. Because with yeah. kids who are grieving, it's so quick like that, especially young kids so fast which is of course how they are with emotions anyway right the tantrum and then the joy and you know in a matter of a minute or two yeah. less right so it's yeah. true of grief and I always say to people be really observant with your children because you'll miss it you'll miss right. the moment where suddenly there's a drop you know in energy or there's a some turn inside that says oh right now I feel so sad but they don't have the words for that so I love that kind of you know, I think the way that you, I don't know, that idea of tracking your kids, you know, and just not without overdoing it, but sort of noticing and taking their lead. And I think that's very true of kids who are able to talk about their sadness and their grief is that, you know, you give them, you answer their questions clearly and honestly, but don't give too much information. It's true when you're talking about illness as well, kids ask a question and you give them enough information, then you can tell their body settles or they move into a different state and you know, they, don't, they don't need to keep asking you. They keep right. asking you, there's something you're not giving them, right? So I right. think a lot too with um, you know, pacing kids through that process where you, I always say, you know, give kids information when something's changed in your medical condition. And I'm not talking about babies so much, Although there's, we have one member of our community who's always talked to her baby about, um, you know, her stage four diagnosis and has really um, felt that was really important to do. So again, everyone has their own way with that, but uh, it is a matter of kind of pacing and listening. And I think, um, like, I think for all of us, grief is very invisible in our culture, especially where we kind of, we've learned to repress it. So kids learn that. So I think in grief, you know, when you're looking at a community taking care of Kedra and other children who are grieving, it is it's such an important thing to watch for, you know, the, the internal movement of grief that shows maybe as a glimmer on the outside. And it, it, if it's acknowledged, it can be, sudden, you know, suddenly there can be an opening where a kid feels, oh, that adult's with me. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe I can say something. Maybe I can, you know, maybe I can cry or I can let something out. So I love that kind of interplay of that that level of dynamic. It's a subtle dynamic for some children. And I think it's an important one for us to understand. Yeah, it actually two things come to mind when you say that. One is like something that a lot of um, just like parenting people that I follow, not about grief specifically, but just talking to kids in general is that if if they're if they're asking they're old enough to get an answer like yeah. you know good, you don't yeah. have to like and you know I'm thinking of like reading stuff about even talking to kids about sexuality and production right. right. and all that kind of stuff it's like if they're asking they're ready for an answer and you don't have to go you know you don't have to like bring out a textbook and give them like a, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. a, like, a, like, a like a four-hour class but just like answer like 
yeah honestly and at like a level that you think they can understand and if they keep asking then you keep answering and if the answer was was good enough then it was good enough or whatever um and if we just like you know don't shy away from it we give them give them so much right and then the other thing that came to mind was like being like so grateful that all of my all of my friends who I, I feel like are my adopted were each other's adopted sisters are yeah. doulas who yeah. you know have a you know they're comfortable talking about raw things and being with people in emotion and they're intuitive and you know kind of know the time to say something and then know the time to just sit with you and like I feel so grateful that that's who's surrounding us Mm -hmm. both for Mm -hmm. for both to be able to because I feel like they you know they have an understanding of life and death and a comfort in it that will help them help Kedra and also just because they know they know me in a way that mm, other people don't, you know, like, you know, different people know different sides of you. And mm-hmm. um, it, I, that's part of why I think it's so important for her to have like mm-hmm. Gary's community, which is amazing. Like he's got an amazing family and incredible friends that like, we're so lucky to have. Mm-hmm. And then we also have my community that is so like here for us and showing up for us and like so committed to staying part of her life whether I'm here or not so that she gets to be surrounded by all these kind of yeah you know, different yeah. Well, I think that's absolutely wonderful that yeah I just I, I agree with you I think that you know you your community of your midwife doula community are they're so used to understanding you know the mystery and and how do you talk to kids about the mystery I mean it's a hard thing people often ask me that parents will say well what do I do if they suddenly say what happens when we die you know and of course you know you you get used to having those conversations when you work in the mystery because there are no I mean there's no ultimate reality you know ultimate truth and it's always amazing how many families do say well this is what happens when you die and I'm like oh that's (laughs) No, interesting you can be you can be so sure about that you know yeah it's very strange but I suppose they want to pass on their belief systems that's what people want to do um you know and so and I think there's a lot of comfort especially if there's you know a big faith tradition too that that's a comfort to people to pass on that those lineages right but I think that in our work we are very used to being in that gray zone of of mystery and and along with mystery of you know comes such delight as well you know the unknown can be very frightening but it can also be so incredible we always forget that part you know we get yeah. frightened of the unknown yeah so I think that that's a you know that there's a lot of those questions that in my mind are unanswerable but we have to get good at answering unanswerable questions don't we Yes. And being like, it's okay to have, you know, I always think even just like in university, my favorite professors were the ones that would just say, I don't know when you ask yeah, a question exactly. instead of giving you some like, made up answer that you could tell they're just making you up. You can tell the <laughs> like, bullshit. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's so funny that we think we have to. So as you again, this territory, this is such territory for that because I don't know is, you know, I think kids, yeah it's such such a huge learning so I don't really know how this happens but 
And then there's some certainties like, you know, I do know that grief um, is a normal response to a loss. So that's a really such a basic and simple thing to say, but again, it can, people get so worried, you know, so easily worried with, you know, emotional territory. And I think this happens in grief a lot where people, you know, the, this balance between when's, you know, when's a child in grief or when's an adult in grief and when are they depressed? I mean, to me, those are, they're very different things, but yeah. we so quickly get, you know, caught up in the pathology, don't we? And the, and the medicalization of grief as well. So I love that you've got, you know, you've got such a strong base in, you know, in your community and, and how you're approaching this of just, you know, letting things unfold and being honest and authentic as you go through it. And I just don't think you can, there is any harm to that, you know, just being ourselves in it and, and really trusting your instincts. I mean, what I often say to, you know, to parents, I deeply trust the grieving process. I deeply trust that we have just as I trust the dying process, I trust the birthing process that, there is a deep intelligence that the body knows how to do that. The mind knows how to do that. And just in the last couple of days, I was with someone who I've known for some time who just died actually early this morning. And I was very fortunate to be with her family uh, yesterday for a couple of hours. And again, I felt this deep calm come over me, which I often do when I'm in the process of um, being with someone at the end of life. That And it's like a deep knowing that this is, truly this is okay i mean it sounds such a weird word when i think what word is it is it okay or what but it's actually such a deep knowing that this is you know we were we we're made for that i mean we knew how to come into this life and we know how to leave this life and we know how to grieve we're wired for grief we're wired for loss and as much as we want to pretend and push it away it's every life has it every life has you know all those things in it and it's so helpful to have that kind of faith, I think, in ourselves and each other and in Kedra that she's she's built for that, for whatever is her life's going to bring her. And you know, we all have you know heartbreak and loss in you know as part of our lives. I love the little the little sounds we're getting. Hi, Kedra. <laughs> when she's supposed to be napping, I love it. She's just part of the conversation. It's so cute. <laughs> really cute little sounds yeah doesn't want to miss out on anything you know she probably, I wonder if she really has got the gist of our conversation or not you know you just wonder where she, you never know. so what do you think you never for, know. Um, like, what advice would you give for adults who maybe it's like their first time considering I'm just being more open about grieving and loss and death and or maybe a bit more like you know a bit more habitually <laughs> likely to avoid those conversations or um, be indirect about them um, or a bit less yeah. comfortable saying things like you know like I'm feeling really sad today because I miss your mom and or whatever you know just kind of like saying yeah. out loud what is real if they're asking yeah. if the kid's asking a question like finding a comfort in in being more open about it and shying away from it right I mean I think there's so many aspects to that but I think this one of protecting one another from our feelings is such a it's again it's such a we've been so taught to do that you know that so that we think by not opening up 
difficult conversations we're protecting the person but it's just becomes then so false you know it's just not you know parents often say to me well should I show my kids that I'm really sad you know um, especially around the death and well how could you not if you're being authentic you know cry in front of your children uh, because you see children learn that they that they can't they they think okay this is a you know this is a something really sad's happening that nobody's expressing their sadness that's so confusing for kids right? right so i think it's the same with conversations you know how can how can you enter in and so i think there's a kind of again there's a past experience with death so if you've had something difficult then you're going to be more fearful of it and you can certainly i think it's really important to work with your fear about death if you want to be around people who are either ill or around kids who are dealing with loss. I think it's really important you understand your own, you know, what you're projecting into the situation. But I think there's also a lack of understanding of what kind of script to use, you know. So I think it's a, it's a really important thing to say, well, how do you say to somebody, you know, or, or say to a child? How, it's almost like they need a language because the language is being taken out of us. It's a funny right. way to say it. You know, the language, the words aren't there because people say, I just don't know what to say, you know, and, and yet, you know, saying less is better, but saying something is absolutely essential. You know, I think the silence is the worst thing you could do if a child's either talking or anyone, child or adult, talking about something um, and wanting to enter in, but then there's, you know, there's no response. So you have to learn to respond. And I think this is a really important life skill for adults to learn. <clears throat> How do you respond in times of loss and in times of, you know, yeah, that, that words, you do have to try and find words. I mean, it's easy to just touch someone or give them a hug, except nowadays it's probably even more important we find the words. <laughs> That's right. We can't do that. And I think we often do that when we don't know what to say. We'll just kind of like, okay, I'll just try and comfort somebody. But I think we have to get better at, and you know, I love when I have a friend who lives in Ireland and I went off to visit her a few years ago and, you know, got off the ferry from Scotland. And, and she said, well, we're just on the way home. We're going to drop in at my, um, my friend's mother's wake. She just died and she was like 85 or something. And she said, so you'll just come with me and we'll just go in. And I said, well, I don't know anyone. And she said, well, it doesn't matter. And in Ireland, you just, everyone goes to everyone else's funerals. And so I went into this little cottage and, um, and she said, I'll just give you a hint. She said, just when people will always, they'll hold out their hand to shake your hand. And then what you need to say is, I'm sorry for your trouble. And I thought that was just so lovely, so Irish. I'm sorry for your trouble, right? So it's like there's a language that, that they're used to. She said there's two ways, sorry for your loss and sorry for your trouble. And I thought that was so, um, she was instructing me of how, how it works here. And then she said, and then you'll see that Maud's out in the back room in the coffin and it'll be an open coffin. She was kind of warning me. And so I went into this house and there are all these little tiny Irish people in their tweed caps and everything. And it was exactly that, that you know, the, this, so you do have to say something. She said, you know, she was basically saying, don't just stand there, say, right. I'm sorry for your loss. And I thought that was beautiful. Um, what I'm saying here is that you, you know, you need to engage, but you don't need to have the right words to say, the profound words to say, you don't need to try and help or fix or, you know, I think we sometimes think our words have to be instructive or sort of helpful. But the most helpful words are just words of empathy, 
really in times of loss and I think that's true of kids too just to convey a feeling without as you said when people sometimes approach you there's a, a kind of almost like a doom and gloom feeling which doesn't help so how do you kind of convey a warmth and a caring without kind of like a, almost like a pity and people in grief say this a lot too that people come at you and they're you know they've got this look on their face of absolute pity and it's the worst thing you could do to someone but you know something lovely to say I'm really sorry I'm really sorry to hear you know what's just happened it's so you know again authenticity how do you I don't know if I answered your question but um are there um do you have um like when do you have speaking speaking of having things to say do you have any like cheap one one liners of things to either say or not say when someone like the things that I think about is like you know like even like if if they say like I miss my mom or how come mom can't come home or um like things like that like I mean maybe there's no there's you know just just like with anything there's no it's not like you can memorize a list of phrases but are there things that you that come to mind for you that are either like helpful or unhelpful like starting yeah. points for people who feel a bit frozen yeah I mean I think I think the language around death is very um problematic with kids because I I hear this a lot where you know kind of like what you were saying you know about not telling a, a child that their parents not coming home but but like the word death dead right so a lot of people can't say that word and especially to children because I think again we're afraid of traumatizing you know kids with that word I mean, it's like all the language I mean you talk about that I'm sure in your community as well like so you don't need you can say the word death and you sh you know people say to their kids well they've just gone into a big long sleep and that's actually the worst thing you could say to a child to equate death and sleep as the same concept right I mean it's really scary for a child and I've had kids say well you know like I'm scared to go to sleep big surprise you know someone's right like, your mommy just went to sleep and is having a good long sleep and you're like well you know so and I you know I can say that in a, in a facetious way but that's really true that's what I mean about people's language it's you really have to use the correct language especially for children and you know it gets confusing when people say well you're you know your mommy's gone to heaven and again kids get really literal about that well where is heaven I had a little boy say well you know he's actually just he was really trying to grapple with this because he said well i you know, my dad told me that mommy's gone to heaven and where is heaven? And I said, well, I don't really know. <laughs> I said, right. I don't really know where heaven is. I mean, I imagine if it existed, it could be way out you know, beyond the, the moon and the stars. And he says, yeah, I think that's right. He said, do you think you can play baseball in heaven? <laughs> of course, it's so right. like literal for this kid, right? I said, I don't, I actually don't know that either, but um you know that would be that would be fun wouldn't it you know kind of that I said that would be fun and then he said well how would you keep your baseball glove on if you don't have a body when you're in heaven like it was like that like he was so literal so right again how you do as you said so beautifully you say you don't have to say just one thing I think you have to be honest and say well I don't know where heaven is if heaven exists then you know, I'd like to think of heaven as a really lovely, peaceful place where there's lots of fun and there's baseball or whatever. So, again, you can you can dream with a child like that as long as you're being honest and, you, and you're not trying to make things up. So 
I, I think the words and the concepts, there's so many concepts that we put onto kids. And I'm always very cautious when I hear, you know, it can be anyone in a community that starts to land a concept on a child about death. And, you know, I've heard people say, well, well, it was, it was, you know, it was better that um, your dad died when you were young, so you don't remember all oh, God. Like, things like that. So, I mean, again, you just, it's like checking that you're, yeah, exactly. That's how I, I react. Like, how can you say that? Like, I mean, people say the strangest things and I think we're better to say less and we're better to convey empathy. And if kids ask questions, answer completely honestly, I have no idea. Uh, I know a lot of people believe there's a heaven. I'm not sure what I believe because I'm just being honest. I, I don't know what I believe about heaven. I like the idea of it, but I'm not sure. So I think it's, um, I think we mustn't, yeah, don't confuse words that are familiar to a child. With well, and I, I always find it a funny thing where like we sometimes think it's like, well, they're too young to, like death is too complicated to understand. So instead we'll tell them they went to sleep or went to heaven. And it's like, well, why do you think they can, you think they're, they're able to understand an abstract philosophical con concept, like a permanent sleep or going to heaven, but you don't right. like either way, you're teaching them a new word. Like why not just teach them the word death the word. and they might yeah. not totally understand it, but eventually they will. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it's everywhere in nature. If you want to describe it, you know, just show them a leaf, you know, it's, it's not difficult to talk about the cycles of life and death. You know, right. and usually I think nature is an amazing metaphor for that. And as is, you know, in things that die, I think it's really important. But um, yeah, I think I think it really mixes kids up. I've, and a lot of kids have what they call magical thinking that they they um, feel that it's something they did or didn't do. And you know, those are things to really watch for when kids are saying things. You know, that they that they can quickly take on responsibility for something. <laughs> they haven't given anything to you know to hold on to so they, well, they we, make up stories then right well that's what i like i think the two things that i think are my fears for her are number yeah. one like feeling <laughs> abandoned which is why i feel like it's so important to leave as much of myself behind as i can and have like trust my community to to maintain the relationship for her to kind of yeah. support her around around that mm. and then the other the other piece is her feeling like it was her fault right right exactly so i think that's what yeah you know i think those are very normal things to worry about i i think the thing about being abandoned abandonment is a deliberate action so what will be most important if someone thinks that's how she's feeling is that, you know, when we abandon people, we make a deliberate decision to do that, right? So that's not what this is about. Yeah. You, you, would, you would be here forever if you could be. So, yeah. you know, I think it's really, those concepts are really important to get clear in one's mind. You know, guilt is another one. I mean, guilt is, when we feel guilty about something, we think we did a bad thing, right? So it's kind of self, hatred really guilt I did something bad if you did do something bad then it's best to take responsibility and have accountability for it but if you're really making things up like I feel bad you know that um, this person died I did some I mustn't have been good enough you know, I, mustn't, 
I just think again, things have to be, you know, corrected in a in a very important way. That um, getting clear, and maybe this is also part of your work on, you know, that feeling that I'm abandoning her. And so I, you know, say that to you that um, it's the last thing you'd ever do. Life, life, life is dictating this. It's not you deciding. So. I think it's a, these are really difficult things. And I, you know, again, I think you're working on it. And I think this will be a lot of people around Kedra to say, you know, this, it's no, death is no one's fault. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing I would say. Like it's, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, I almost, I was finding comfort in you talking, like just before I said that about, um, I know something you said about, like when you're honest with them you're giving them an understanding that kind of it kind of leads to them understanding that death is not their fault like if you're using the metaphors of like the dead leaves or the dead oh. bugs or the um yeah. like, you know the dead fish or the dead crab on the beach like if you if you take advantage of all those opportunities to like normalize death as a part of life then they don't need to look for why it's their why it's their fault because they understand death is that happens That's it's only right. the only if we just avoid it all together then yeah. they're confused and then yeah. they and then they might go down that path yeah and kids, and kids are so used to cause and effect right i did something and then this happened like that right. so is that way of thinking right and death of course in any of those you know larger concepts can't put can't put it into the same frame as kids do right this happened therefore i must have done something so i think yeah i like that's why i like those metaphors of especially nature i think because it is like that you know this is what happens the life of a tree and there's some beautiful books for children on on death that, that use those you know those kind of um, metaphors for for life and death of humans yeah i have um i do have a should ask you for some recommendations but i do have um i think it's called lifetimes and it talks about yeah like like you know different animals and plants yeah. and how they all have different lifetimes and some of them live a long time and some of them live a short time yeah. I, I love that and that's for little yeah young kids it's really really sweet and the, yeah, yeah well, so I, can, I can give you some other ideas at another time but did we kind of cover some of the things you were hoping yeah to talk i think about? So. that was that was great it's so you know it's um, yeah, it's just really nice to hear someone's perspective and I always find it comforting to talk to someone like I have my kind of like, you know, my instinct and intuition around her, but it's also, com it's also comforting to talk to someone with like real experience working with so many families and <laughs> kids of different ages and for such a long time. Yeah. Well, I could just, uh, I could just keep you, I could keep you on the phone for forever and ever but I'm sure you have other things to do and Kedra seems to want to be entertained so I she, does, she does there's no nap this afternoon yet anyway I'm skipping the nap I'm skipping, skipping the nap and wanting to be entertained yeah. so we will go yeah. uh, we'll play with some plants on the patio uh, well thanks for thanks for having you know yeah, you're just again the, just the courage to have the conversation and to share it is really meaningful to me and I'm I really appreciate this time with you as always. Thank you so much for
Well, thanks so, so much for coming. Thanks a lot. We'll talk soon. Okay, okay. talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Okay, bye. Bye. My takeaways from our conversation is to not shy away from opportunities to talk honestly with our kids about death, answer their questions honestly, even if the answer is I don't know. Um, also the importance of the community maintaining the relationship for the child with the person who has died. Um, I'm counting on all of you to do that for me if I'm not here to do it myself and I'm doing my best to make it really easy by leaving behind books and photos and stories and recordings and all kinds of things so please use them I'm counting on you to maintain the relationship with me with my child if I'm not here to do it myself and I'm sure a million other things that I can't think of right now. Um, thanks for listening and thanks again to Janie for being here with us today. It doesn't matter where you'll be We are connected
that's where I'll be. Thanks for listening to If I'm Not Here to Tell You. I'm Jessica Austin, and talking with me today was Janie Brown of Callanash Society and author of Radical Acts of Love. The song I played was by Christy Robin, my very good friend and photographer, um, whose work and friendship is very close to my family's heart. And she's secretly an incredibly talented artist and singer and writer as well. So thanks, Christy, for writing us that beautiful song. You can find me on Instagram at Jessica Austin Childbirth, where I provide lots of free education on birth and related insights and where you can learn about my doula training and prenatal classes. If you benefit from the free education I provide and wish to make a contribution to my projects for my daughter or my fundraising for Callanash Society, you can find my links to do so in my Instagram bio. No pressure though, it's all just there because folks ask for it. As always, I'll finish with my favorite poem, The Piece of Wild Things by Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world, and am free. So rest in the grace of the world, people, and be free. See you next time.